Open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6, the sixth chapter of Daniel. This marks the halfway point of the book of Daniel that we've been studying for the past uh, few months, past couple of months. And this chapter, of course, is uh, one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. Matter of fact, when you hear the, the name Daniel, you almost immediately associate Daniel with what? Daniel and the lion's den. So this is the famous Daniel and the lion's den passage, which actually makes it very difficult to preach because it's so well known and we all have a certain amount of, of, of already previously embedded thoughts that we, we have in our minds as we come to this text. Now, as you're finding the passage, some of you, most of you probably know, some of you may not, that, that we, my family, we are not native Georgians. We're just not, we're not from, this is not our home state. And how can you tell we're not native Georgians? Well, there may be a lot of ways that some of you guys can tell that we're not native Georgians. But certainly, one of the ways might be something like this, which is a poster that normally hangs in my office. And it says this, I may live in Georgia, but I'm always in hog country, okay? This is the banner of my loyalty that hangs in, in my office, at least my, my sports loyalty, if you will. And, uh, and you, there's other ways you can tell that we are from Arkansas as well. The little license plate on the front of our um, SUV out there is a Razorback. Sometimes you might see us wearing um, Arkansas, University of Arkansas shirts, um, we have a pig. I don't know if that's just a sign of being from Arkansas or not, but the pig's name is Suey. So, woo pig Suey. So, there are plenty of signs, there are plenty of things that mark us out as not being from Georgia. We are aliens, we are strangers to Georgia. And uh, so, when we're driving around and I see another little hog license plate on a car, I'm always, ooh, ooh, there's another, another one of us. Uh, I don't know if they have a pig or not, but. Uh, we are, strange. we are marked out as different as strangers and aliens in Georgia. I was thinking about that as I thought about this book of Daniel that we've been looking at. And we've been talking about how Daniel and his friends are marked out as strangers and aliens in a foreign land. Of course, we know the story that, that, that Judah fell, Jerusalem fell to Nebuchadnezzar because of their sin. And he invaded Jerusalem after a four-year siege, and then he... he wipes out the temple, and he takes many of the people with him. And in that first group of exiles that were taken, there were young men, the best of the young men of the land, including Daniel and his three friends. And there they are. And the whole book of Daniel is about how to live in exile. What marks out Daniel and his, his friends as different? And they're, they're not only physically in exile in the sense that they are now away from their homeland, they are away from Jerusalem, they are also spiritual exiles because there's more here than just the physical nation of Israel that has fallen and the, and the physical nation of Judah that has fallen. It's also that the kingdom of God is continuing on. Despite the fall of Judah, the kingdom of God is continuing on and it can't be stopped. And so Daniel and his friends are not only physical exiles, they are spiritual exiles in Babylon and all the people there in Babylon represent the kingdom of the world. And Daniel and his friends and the other Jewish exiles represent the kingdom of God. Now, during football season, which is coming up, the clash of, of loyalties, uh, of our loyalties here as, as Arkansans, comes out. Although this year, Arkansas and Georgia aren't playing each other. But 
but it's during that time when you really see the clash of the loyalties. You see the clash of the, of the two different uh, kingdoms, if you will. And in chapter 6 of Daniel, we have the climax of the clash of kingdoms. We've been seeing it all along in these first six chapters, the clash of kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of the world. And it comes to its climax here in Daniel chapter 6. So I want you to stand, if you would, as we read Daniel 6. We're going to begin in verse 1, read straight through the entire chapter, and then we will walk through the chapter verse by verse. Daniel 6, beginning in verse 1, we read uh, the honor of uh, showing honor to God's word, which is infallible, inerrant, and all-sufficient. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king... Establish this injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber opened toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, uh, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords. 
that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is a treasure to us. It is sweeter to us than the sweetest honey on the planet. So God, we pray that you would help us this morning to take it in, to enjoy it, to savor it. Lord, give us ears to hear it. Give me a mouth to speak it. And Father, forgive us of any sin that's going to, to stand in the way of us receiving your word this morning. Forgive our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we praise you and thank you that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we have that assurance of forgiveness. And so speak now through your word, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As I said last week, this book of Daniel is about the sovereignty of God and the supremacy of God's kingdom over the whole world. Despite the destruction of Judah, God's kingdom is still marching on. Israel and Judah were just earthly pointers to a greater kingdom. And more than that, Daniel teaches us that God's kingdom will, in the end, triumph. Nothing can stop the march of God's kingdom and the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom. The book of Daniel, you probably know this, is broken up into two parts, really. Chapters 1 through 6, chapter 7 through 12. These first six chapters show us in this historical narrative how the kingdom of God is continuing to prevail despite what it looks like on the surface. The kingdom of God continues to be victorious. And then chapters 7 through 12 are filled with apocalyptic prophetic language that talks to us and shows us that God's kingdom ultimately will prevail. There's no doubt that God's kingdom in the end will win. But in Daniel chapter 6 here, we have the clash of these kingdoms. And we're going to focus on the contrast between the two kingdoms. This is a little bit of a different approach to Daniel and the lion's den than perhaps you are used to. 
I think most of the time when we preach through Daniel and the lion's den, we, we really focus on the character of Daniel. And there's some of that in my sermon today. We're going to look at what marks his faith. And so usually we just kind of look at the character of Daniel. But I want us to look at the overall picture here. This is in the story, of the overall story of the book of Daniel. We're talking about two kingdoms at war. So I want us to see the clash of the kingdoms here. And so in your notes there, you'll see two headings. And there's two columns that are going to fill out this, um, this your notes. So there's the one column says the kingdom of heaven. The other column says the kingdom of the world. Or we could say the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of of men, or the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. And the first contrast, I want to compare these and I'm going to contrast them. The first contrast I want us to see is that the kingdom of heaven is unshakably firm. The kingdom of the world is undeniably fragile. Unshakably firm is the kingdom of God, but the kingdom, the kingdoms of men are undeniably fragile. And we see that immediately. Matter of fact, we need to actually back up into the very end of chapter 5 to see what I'm talking about here. Look at the end of chapter 5. And if you remember from last week, we looked at Belshazzar and we looked at how the handwriting on the wall and that his time was up and the kingdom was taken from him. And so we read in verse 30 of chapter 5, that very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The point I'm trying to make this morning is simply this. Yet another king is on the scene. Matter of fact, this is, we have a whole other kingdom now on the scene. Remember the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, I should, should say? Not the statue he built, but the statue that was in his dream, where there was the, the head of gold, and then we had the, the silver, the, the chest of silver, and then the loins and the, the thighs of bronze and the legs of iron and clay. And you remember that picture of the statue in chapter 2? Well, the golden head represented Babylon. Daniel made it clear what the golden head was, and that golden head has now crumbled. That golden head has been pulverized. And now the next feeble king is on the scene. Now, there's a bit of a historical problem here, so let's just touch on this real quick like we did last week with the guy, with the, whoever this Darius character is, because we don't have real clear historical records as to who this particular Darius is. Uh, some people believe that this is another name for the governor of Babylon that Cyrus has placed over Babylon, a, name, a guy named Gabaru, and this is just another name for him. Others believe this might be an unnamed vassal king because there are historical records that show us for about 14 months that Cyrus put a king over Babylon, but we don't know what his name was, and maybe it was, it was Darius. Uh, some believe that this is just Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. It's just another name for Cyrus. Others believe that there's just no way to know. We have no idea who this Darius is, which shouldn't be a problem for us, as we talked about last week. It's not a problem for us. We believe and have absolute confidence that God's Word is infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient. And just like last week where we saw that Belshazzar was considered a fictional character until all of a sudden, 1859, boom, evidence appears of who he is. We have the same confidence about Darius. Now, I seem to believe that Darius, as I've looked at the different arguments, Darius is Cyrus. Cyrus the Great. It's just another name for Cyrus. The reason I say that because in the text itself here, we have someone that has the power to change laws. And someone who's just a vassal king or someone who's just a governor doesn't have that kind of power. And the, and the extent of his power is seen at the very end of the passage where he talks about this proclamation going out to all the kingdom. So I think Darius is another name for Cyrus. And there's some good scholars out there that make some good arguments for that. And I think that um, probably Darius is the Median name, uh, and Cyrus is the king's 
Persian name. Now, again, bottom line, it really doesn't matter who he is. The point is we have yet another turnover in Kings. This is the third king that we have Daniel, that we have recorded of Daniel having direct interaction with. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and now Darius. But it's really the seventh king since the exile. And I talked a little bit about that last week. So this is the seventh king. So kings have come and gone. Foes have come and gone. Empires have come and gone. But here stands 80-year-old Daniel as a testimony to the stability and the firmness of God's kingdom and God's people. As Daniel said in his early exilic experience in chapter 2, verse 21, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. So hopefully we have learned as we've looked through these first six chapters of Daniel, we've learned what the psalmist says in Psalm 146.3, Put not your trust in princes. Put not your trust in government systems and political parties and presidents because they're feeble. They are undeniably fragile. Put your hope in the king of kings who is unshakably firm. Oh, how fragile the reign of man is and how firm the reign of God is. That's one of the clear contrasts being drawn by Daniel in this book. What appears weak to the world, so you got Daniel, he was just a young lad when he came to Babylon, now he's an 80-year-old man. What appears weak to the world is greater than what appears strong to the world. Mighty kings and mighty kingdoms Gone like shaft, but there stands Daniel. The kingdom of men, the kingdom of this world are fragile and ever-changing, but the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is steady and firm. Now God showed both Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And now in the timeline of the book of Daniel, he's chosen to lend power to a guy by the name of Darius. So look at verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. So the first order of business for Darius is to organize things. Now a satrap, you wonder what's that? That's just a, 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 a it literally means the defender of the kingdom. So it's someone that helps watch over the kingdom. So the first order of business is to, is to establish some hierarchy, to put some things together, some order. Because the Medo-Persian Empire was an enormous empire. After they swallowed up Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire covered about 2.9 million square miles. It's a big empire. And it had 50 million people in it. Now, that may not sound like a lot to you guys in our day and age, considering our nation's about 300 million people. But 50 million people during Daniel's time was 44% of the world's population. So almost half the world is in this kingdom. So it needs a little bit of organization. And so verse 2 shows us that Darius placed... um, Over these satraps, he put three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account. Why? It says here, so that the king might suffer no loss. And right there again, we see the frailty, we see the fragility of man's kingdom. So that the king might suffer no loss. The king's assets needed protection. The king's taxes needed collection. The kingdoms of this world are fragile, and they must be protected from loss. Not so God's kingdom. Now, how did Daniel get into this position? How did Daniel get into this position? Perhaps it's just carrying over from chapter 5. Remember, he was exalted up to the third level and third highest person in the kingdom at the end of chapter 5. So maybe it's just carrying over. Okay, that wasn't a very long period of time because Belshazzar died that very night. But perhaps Cyrus comes in and sees 
uh, Daniel in that position is it says, hey, you know what, you'd be helpful here. Or, or perhaps um, simply Daniel's reputation has gone before him, like we've seen before with the queen last week. Daniel's reputation has gone before him. He's a wise man, and, and he's the kind of guy that Cyrus wants to have over a bunch of other people in the kingdom. Or maybe... Maybe it's because Daniel has prophesied the downfall of Babylon. He did it earlier in his prophecy. Some of the prophecies we'll look at in the next few chapters. But also there with the handwriting on the wall, he, he prophesied the downfall of Babylon. And maybe that really pleased Cyrus. Hey, I like this guy. He, he seems to speak in our favor. Regardless, again, we see the principle that God exalts the humble. Ultimately, it was God's doing. God providentially assembled Darius's cabinet. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And Daniel's remarkable skill and character led to even more honor. Verse 3. Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So, the steady, unbreakable rule of God is seen in Daniel's remarkable rise to the second place in the kingdom. But now in his 80s, this old man is about to face the fiercest trial he's ever faced in his life. And this should be a lesson to us well. I think that sometimes we think the, the, the toughest trials in life come when we're young, but not necessarily. Sometimes they come when we're very old. And I think Daniel's most difficult trial is going to happen right now. And in this trial, we see the next contrast that Daniel draws for us between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world. And here it is. The kingdom of heaven has citizens marked by powerful faith, whereas the kingdom of the world has citizens marked by prideful folly. Powerful faith versus prideful folly. First, we see the folly. What we have seen here in this story, what we will see here as we go through this, is just a few of the things that flow out of the heart of a person whose primary citizenship belongs to the world. First, we notice that they are fault finders. Look at verse 4. They're fault finders. Then these high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. In other words, these men go on a fishing expedition. They want to find some dirt on Daniel. Why? Well, maybe it's just flat-out jealousy. He's been exalted to a position they wish they were in. Maybe it's greed. Remember, he's trying to pr protect the king from loss. And maybe these guys kind of like taking some of the king's stuff off to the side for themselves. And Daniel's too honest. He's protecting the king from loss. So maybe it's greed. Who knows? Maybe it's racism. Verse 13, when they bring their complaint to the king about Daniel, you'll notice they kind of have a, they kind of talk about him as, he talk, as an exile from Judah in almost sort of a despicable way. Maybe it's that. Who knows? Regardless, they do not have anyone's interest in mind but their own. They are filled with self-love. Another mark is that they're dishonest. Look at verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. And look at what they say in verse 7. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed. Everyone agrees, king. They made it appear that Daniel was in agreement with them, but of course this was false. A hatred of truth. Of objective truth is another hallmark of those who belong to the kingdom of this world. You remember that Jesus said in John 8, 44, that those of this world, their father is the devil. Their father, who, who, who is a liar from the beginning. The prince of the power of the air. 
is the one who rules over the citizens of this world. And dishonesty is a hallmark of their character. Notice next that they are manipulative. Verse 7 again, they come to the king, they say, you should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now they are manipulating the king here. Now they are appealing certainly to his pride and to his uh, love for power, but maybe not in the way you think. I don't know, when I was a kid, you read this story, and you think that Darius is being tempted to be God. That Darius is putting himself in the position of God. Maybe that's part of what's happening here, but in reality, what these guys were doing is, is probably was something that actually made a little bit of practical sense. First of all, kings in the ancient world oftentimes functioned in a priestly role as well. The king would be a mediator between the gods and the men. But secondly... The, the kingdom of the Medo-Persian kingdom had a different uh, policy regarding other religions than did the, the kingdom of Babylon. You remember Babylon brings everything into Babylon. Take all the, the temple um, utensils and all that and they bring it all to Babylon. They did that with all the nations. But Cyrus and the Medo-Persian empire had a different policy. They repatriated these other nations. They actually sent these the things back to the previous nations thought I think they thought that perhaps they could keep peace that way that's why in Ezra the beginning of Ezra Cyrus says he sends Ezra back to to reestablish the the temple and so this was their policy so so perhaps during this time of uncertainty okay where where now he's going to begin to send the items of worship back to their their homelands during this time of uncertainty it makes sense for 30 days just 30 days to, to handle all the chaos of who's worshiping who, no one can worship and pray except to you, O king. In other words, they were telling Darius, for the next 30 days, you need to be the one mediator between gods and men. You, King Darius. And so they manipulated King Darius, and verse 9 says, therefore Darius signed the document and injunction. So they are fault finders, they are dishonest, they are manipulative, and finally notice that they level false accusations. After they catch Daniel praying, we read in verse 13, then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, listen to this, pays no attention to you, O king. So they are leveling an accusation that Daniel is disloyal to the king, when in reality Daniel was the most loyal of all of these men to the king. Daniel did break the law, but he wasn't being disloyal to the king. He was actually the king's most trusted advisor. They are fault finders, they are dishonest, they are manipulative, and they level false accusations. These are just some of the marks of those who belong to the kingdom of the world and are just some of the actions that they levy against the people of God's kingdom. But ultimately, underneath all this is at work, as Deemer said earlier, the prince of the power of the air. Ultimately, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Underneath this is a roaring lion who seeks to devour the people of God. And of course, that roaring lion is Satan. But now in verse 10, we see the contrast. So we see the contrast between citizens marked by prideful folly and now citizens marked by powerful faith. And in verse 10, verse 10 is a remarkable verse that speaks volumes about the type of faith that Daniel possessed. And so I'm going to look at this for a little while. Let's read verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed. Daniel willfully violates the law that the most powerful man in the world had just signed. 
a man who has the power to throw him into a cage full of hungry lions. But Daniel was courageous because he was fearful. That's right. He was courageous because he was fearful. Fearful of the right thing, that is. Luke 12, verses 4 through 5, Jesus says this. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Daniel's faith was courageous because he feared God more than men. But I want to caution you against getting the wrong impression about Daniel's courage here. We must not view Daniel's courage as some sort of reactionary thing, that he just reacts to a terrible law. He hears about the law, and then he just, okay, fine, I'm going to show them. And he flings open the windows, and he starts praying. That, that's not what Daniel's doing. This is not some sort of reaction. And we know that because of what it continues to say in verse 10. Look at verse 10. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God. What does it say? As he had done previously. Daniel just kept on doing what he had always been doing. You see, courageous citizens of God's kingdom aren't those who start to stand up when the going gets tough. It's those who have already been consistently standing for God all along. What we see then is Daniel's faith wasn't only courageous, it was also, and I'll give you another C word here, if you're taking notes, I've got several C's. It was not only courageous, it was consistent. It was courageous, it was consistent. He was living the faith as he always had. And his faith was here, and here, here's a third C, you ready? It was also conspicuous. It was courageous, consistent, conspicuous, meaning it was clear to everyone. Everyone knew that Daniel was a man of faith, a man of integrity. Matter of fact, Daniel's faith is so clear that in verse 5, if you look back up at verse 5, these men knew that the only way they were going to catch Daniel is if they could get him to violate God's law. That's how consistent his faith was. They knew if it came between God's law and this law that we're going to try to get the king to sign, we know we got Daniel then. Because Daniel is a man whose faith was, was, was very, very consistent and very conspicuous, very clear. And that's why they caught him so fast in verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Friends, I wonder if our faith in the public sphere is that consistent, that conspicuous, that people know we would rather die than give up prayer for 30 days. Daniel's consistent, conspicuous faith is even evident in Darius's words later in the chapter. Verse 16, he says, may your God whom you serve, what? Continually deliver you. Verse 20, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you? So his faith was courageous, it was consistent, it was conspicuous. But notice another thing from verse 10. Here's another C. I am a Baptist preacher, so I like to put these things together like that. Here's another C. His faith was also counterintuitive. What do I mean by that? Did you notice the content of Daniel's prayer? Look at verse 10. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and what? Gave thanks before his God. Gave thanks. The lion's den awaits. And you're giving thanks, Daniel? Now, his prayer wasn't exclusively thanksgiving. We see that from verse 11, that it also included petitions and pleas before God. But his prayers were laced with thanksgiving, with gratitude. Why? 
That's so counterintuitive. Why would he pray that way? Because Daniel knew that trials, even the most extreme of trials, are mere tools in the hand of a sovereign God for the good of his, of his kingdom citizens. Perhaps during this ordeal, Daniel was even remembering the words of Joseph. In, back in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for what? Good. Listen to the counterintuitive faith that marks the citizens of God's kingdom who are exiles in this world. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, of course, most of you are familiar with another passage very similar to that, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Joy and thanksgiving flow out of the trials that God's kingdom citizens go through. That is counterintuitive. That makes no sense to the world. Now, I have another C that marks Daniel's faith. His faith is courageous, consistent, conspicuous, counterintuitive. And finally, it's covenantal. What on earth do I mean by that? Well, look again at verse 10. What do you see? You see it says that Daniel had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. Now, what is that all about? Windows open toward Jerusalem. Well, he's not doing it out of superstition, but he's doing it because he's showing his faith in a covenant God. What do I mean? Well, Daniel knows that his God is a God of covenants who keeps covenant with his people, who, in other words, keeps divine promises. So all Daniel is doing is praying according to 1 Kings 8, verses 46 through 51. Now let me set that up for you real quick. What's happening in 1 Kings 8 is Solomon is dedicating the temple. In 1 Kings 8, 46, what we have is, the, is his dedication prayer. And in that dedication prayer, Solomon, praying before God, acknowledges to God that God's people will sin and will fall away. And as a result of their sin, they will be taken away by foreigners. So as the temple's being dedicated, Solomon knows this. And he's praying to God about this. And, he, and when you get to uh, verse 48 in that passage, it says this. This is Solomon praying. He says, If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, and listen to this, pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then, hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Solomon wasn't praying this. He wasn't, he wasn't praying for God's people to, to turn and pray towards, towards the land and pray towards the city and pray towards the temple out of some superstition. Matter of fact, we know it's not superstition because he says right here, your dwelling place is in heaven. What are they doing when they look toward the land? They're remembering the covenant promises of God that he will not abandon his people. So Daniel's not doing something superstitious here. He's simply hanging on the promises of God. He's believing in the covenantal promises of God. He's trusting in the steadfast covenantal love of God. He's demonstrating his faith in God's covenantal word. Oh, friends, may our faith 
Be courageous in this culture that continues its moral slide. May our faith be consistent so that the circumstances do not determine whether it's hot or cold. May our faith be conspicuous, clear, and open for all to see. May our faith be counterintuitive in that we are people of thanksgiving and joy in the midst of trial. And may it be covenantal in that we are people who stand on the covenantal promises of God's Word. And it's that trust in God's Word, in God's law, it really gives us the next contrast. The kingdom of heaven has a steadfast law of God, but the kingdoms of the world have the shifting laws of men. As you may have noticed, there's a lot of parallels between this chapter, chapter 6, and chapter 3, the fiery furnace chapter, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. One of those similarities is the use of repetition. Remember in chapter 3, there's this, there's this repetition of the people who were showing up there at this ceremony, and there's the repetition of the types of instruments being used. And repetition serves a purpose for the, for the narrator. And we see repetition in today's text as well. Look at verse 8. You'll see the, the phrase that's repeated three times in this chapter. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed. And here's, here's the phrase. According to the law... Of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. We see that exact same phrase again in verse 12 and something extremely similar in verse 15. So, what is Daniel doing here by repeating the fact that the law of the Medes and the Persians could not be revoked? He's drawing a contrast between the supposedly fixed and unchangeable law of the Medes and the Persians and the law of God. Do you remember back at verse 5? Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with what? The law of his God. Daniel is drawing the battle lines for us. He's drawing the battle lines between the law of God on one hand and the law of the Medes and the Persians on the other hand. Daniel knew that the law of the Medes and the Persians was subservient to the law of God. Daniel's whole life had been a model of what Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 13, which says we are to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. But Daniel also knows that those governing authorities could, and oftentimes would, stray from their mandate and create laws that would trespass God's law. And when those laws come into conflict, when those laws clash, God's law had to prevail. So Daniel, in essence, is saying the exact same thing the apostle said in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, that he must obey God rather than men. We see this conflict in our day, don't we? We see laws now in our nation requiring people, whether it be a photographer or a baker or whatever, to participate in a wedding that's a clear violation of God's law. Or maybe the case that's been in the news recently that the Charlie Guard, the the, the baby that just passed away, maybe you guys have been following that. The, the state took it upon its, took it into its jurisdiction to decide whether or not this child lived or died. Whether or not the parents could, could actually parent this child and care for this child the way they are called to do according to God's law. And what we have, the way God has set it up, there are spheres of authority. And government has a sphere of authority. But when government or any kingdom begins to go outside of that sphere of authority and take other authority, like authority about the nature of marriage, authority about the nature of sexuality, authority about life and death, then they have trespassed God's law, and we have no choice but to obey God's law over man's law. And that's what's happening here with Daniel. 
Citizens of the kingdom of God are exiles in the kingdom of men. And we must have the courage to stand up against any unjust laws that call on us to violate God's law, to violate God's word. But that assumes that we know God's law, that we know God's word. What chapter in the Bible sounds out a love for God's law, for God's precept, for God's word more than any other chapter in all the Bible? What is it? Psalm 119, which Deemer read from earlier. And you may have heard what Deemer said when he was about to read that psalm, or maybe it was afterwards when he prayed after he read that psalm. There are many scholars that are convinced that Daniel is the author of Psalm 119. After studying that psalm this week, I don't know for sure, but it's very intriguing to think that Daniel might have been the one who wrote Psalm 119. And I've actually been, been meditating upon Psalm 119 uh, in in my own personal quiet time over the past few days. And it's amazing when you think about that maybe Daniel wrote this, it's amazing how many places in this psalm that Daniel's hope in his, and his love for God's law is what carries him through adversity, is what carries him through trials. Let me just highlight a few of them for you. And I'm reading, I, devotionally, I'm doing the, the Christian Standard Bible. So if this sounds a little bit different than your ESV, that's okay. It's close. Uh, psalm 119, verse 23. Now, this sounds like Daniel, doesn't it? Though princes sit together speaking against me, your servant will think about your statutes. How do you handle it when people are speaking against you? You focus on the word of God. You rest on the word of God. Let me go to another one. Verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction. Your promises have given me life. The arrogant constantly ridicule me, but I do not turn away from your instruction. What carried him when it looked like everyone was against him? It was the word of God, his confidence in God's law. And it goes on and on and on. I don't have time to read all the different ones that I've highlighted here, but I encourage you with thinking about Daniel's situation. I want you to go read Psalm 119 and see how many times God's law is what carries him through affliction and helps him come through adversity. Now, we cannot expect to stand out on the day of our trial, to stand up, I should say, on the day of our trial and to stand firm on the day of our affliction if we do not love this book. If you have no love for this book and you're not in this book, when the day of adversity comes, you will fall. Now, I want you to notice something about the situation here. For Daniel, a violation of God's law didn't merely consist of acts of commission, things he did, but also of omission. What do I mean? Well, again, there's parallels between chapter 3 and chapter 6. Now, in chapter 3, you remember what's happening here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are being tempted to do what? Commit a sin of idolatry. But look what's happening in chapter 6. Daniel isn't being asked to bow down to any idol. Matter of fact, he's not being told to do anything. He's simply being told to stop worshiping and praying to God and only for 30 days at that. 30 days. Don't worship God for 30 days. That's all he's being asked to do. You see what the parallel is showing us? That failure to worship God is the same thing as idolatry. To not worship God is the same sin as worshiping a false god. Both are violations of God's law. The very first commandment at that. And oh how easy it would have been for Daniel to justify this sin of omission. It's only 30 days, right? It would have been so easy to justify this. I can, I can imagine Satan's little whispers coming. 
Daniel, man, you know how valuable you are to the king. You've been doing so much good. I mean, come on. Just don't pray for 30 days so you can keep doing it. You'll start back up after 30 days. No big deal. Or Daniel, don't you remember what Jeremiah said? You're supposed to seek the welfare of the city. How can you seek the welfare of the city if you get thrown to the lions? Daniel, just don't worry about it for 30 days. Or, Daniel, don't you remember that Jeremiah prophesied that in 70 years the the exiles would return? That's almost here, Daniel. You don't want to miss out on that. Plus, we know that from Isaiah 44 and 45, that a guy named Cyrus would be the one who would facilitate the Jews going back. So that guy's here now. So Daniel, any day now, the return is coming. 30 days, just 30 days without prayer. But for Daniel... He knew that to cease to worship and pray to his God, even for 30 days, was the exact same thing as committing idolatry. Too many of us, without the pressure facing Daniel, already commit the idolatrous sin of neglecting worship and prayer. I want to repeat a question that I read from C. Clare Ferguson in his commentary on this passage, and here it is. He said this, Would it make any substantial difference in our lives or in the lives of our church fellowship if prayer were banned for the next 30 days? Think about that. Would it make any substantial difference in our lives or in the lives of our church fellowship if prayer were banned for the next 30 days? I honestly have to wonder. Could we just go on with life as normal? Would Harbin's just go on with things as normal? And so we have evil men that have set a trap for Daniel. They've sprung the trap, and now Daniel has been caught, and it seems that they've won. But they're in for a surprise. For the last contrast I wish to draw for us this morning is simply this. The contrast between a faithful king and feeble kings. So in verses 12 and 13, these men smugly come before the king and tell him that Daniel had violated the law. And we read in verse 14 that when the king learned that he had been duped, It says this, he was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. He labored all day. He called his best lawyers. He called his craftiest politicians, but no loopholes could be found in the law. He is a feeble king who can do nothing. He cannot save. He does not have the power of salvation in his hand. So we read in verse 16, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. This king now sees his own powerlessness, and he's at least putting some hope in Daniel's God, the higher king. And a stone was brought and laid at the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and the signet of his lords, that nothing may change concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. So there's two Two, people, two groups going hungry. There's the lions and there's the king that night. No diversions were brought to him and slept fled from him. Isn't it interesting that the story focuses on the king's night? I've always found that very interesting with the story of Daniel. We're not even given any details as to what's going on in the lion's den right now. We've got the king's palace. He's having a hard time sleeping. All I can imagine is that Daniel's having a very, very interesting conversation with an angel and snuggling up to a lion and getting a good night's sleep. The point here, why does Daniel include the night of a king and not his own night in the den? 
The point is to show the weaklessness, I mean the weakness and the restlessness of human kings. Verse 19, then at daybreak the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And so cue the dramatic music. I can imagine if I'm making a movie of this, there's got to be a little bit of a dramatic pause right there, right? Cue the music, and then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel to shut the lions' mouths. There's another parallel with chapter 3. Who was in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? It was the one who looked as if as the son of the gods was in there. Many people believe this was a Christophany. Jesus himself was with the three in the furnace, and he's with Daniel here in the lion's den. He goes on and says, They have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him. There's another parallel with chapter 3. They were taken out of the furnace. Nothing was singed on them. So there's no harm found on Daniel because he had trusted in his God. So let me wrap this up. This does not mean that God's people who exercise great faith and stand firmly on God's word, that no harm will ever befall them. It doesn't mean that. Daniel had no idea if he was going to be lion chow or not. Just as the three friends didn't know if they were going to get vaporized or not. The point is that God is faithful to his people regardless of what the world can do to them. Because God's faithfulness, God is faithful to his people, and that faithfulness includes the fact that even death itself cannot separate us from God's covenantal love. As Hebrews 11.33 says, Daniel had a faith that stopped the mouths of lions, a faith that looked to a better kingdom, a better country, a better city, the city of God, a city that not even death could keep Daniel from. And that's the imagery here. To go down into the lion's pit was sure death, and to come out unscathed was nothing less than a resurrection. Do you see? Death is defeated for those who are of the kingdom of heaven. The victory over death was guaranteed half a millennia later in a garden tomb outside of Jerusalem. Did you find some similar words, some familiar words in verse 17? And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. Daniel's trial and victory foreshadow a greater trial and a greater victory that Christ accomplished on behalf of Daniel and on behalf of us and on behalf of all who belong to the kingdom of heaven. Oh, death. Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. O friends, do you see the point of the book of Daniel? When kingdoms clash, the kingdom of God wins. In the rest of this book, chapters 7 through 12, as I said earlier, are going to give us some fascinating, sometimes strange, sometimes very difficult to interpret apocalyptic prophecies that all point to this very clear truth that the kingdom of God prevails. They point to the truth shouted out by the angel in Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Oh yes, the book of Daniel is a preview of what is coming, namely, that, that stone, which was cut by no human hand, 
will pulverize the kingdoms of men and will become a mountain that will fill the whole earth. It's a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It shall stand forever. So the question this morning is, are you a part of that kingdom, my friend? You may live in the world. You may live in the world, but are you part of God's country? Are you a citizen of a greater kingdom? Oh, friend, if you are not, then I plead with you to put your faith in a better king. Put your faith in King Jesus, the one who, like Daniel, was accused, tried, and condemned by wicked men. Jesus, who, like Daniel, was condemned to die, but who, unlike Daniel, did experience physical death. For he died for the sins of all of his kingdom citizens. But then he, like Daniel, rose out of that pit. The stone was rolled away, and he, like Daniel, walked out with death defeated. Oh, friends, this is an offer of amnesty that King Jesus is giving you to come, repent, and put your faith in him. If you do not, you will suffer a worse fate than those men who tried to trap Daniel. Look at what happened to them in verse 24. And the king commanded that those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children and their wives, that sounds so harsh, but just so a little bit of historical background, the law of the Medes and the Persians required this so that there would be no attempt for any relatives to exact revenge. But more importantly, the spiritual principle is, is that our actions don't affect only us. Men, what we do affects our children and our wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones to pieces. Our friends, that is Disney World compared to hell. Hell is a lot worse than that. Oh, friend, if you've not bowed the knee to Jesus, don't go further today. Don't go further than this moment right now than to plead to God to repent of your sins and turn to him. And believers in here, let us finish with Darius' words of praise. He finishes with words of praise to this superior king, the king of heaven. Look at verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Oh, friends, do you know that Savior this morning, I ask? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it gives us enormous comfort to know that in the midst of the trials that we're facing, could be something very personal, could be something involving our family, or the trials that a church might face, or the trials that just believers in a nation that's continuing to, continuing to slip away from your word might face. God, I pray and thank you, Lord, that it's comforting to know that we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We belong to a kingdom that will prevail. And they can take us, and they can accuse us, and they can kill us. 
but they can't remove us from your kingdom. What comfort that gives us. And Lord, I pray that we would face our trials the way Daniel did, with thanksgiving. Lord, put thanksgiving in our heart. That is not what normally comes to our mind when difficulty hits us. Lord, I pray for the youth in this room. Their faith is going to be tried more than their grandparents' faith or their parents' faith ever was. Lord, may they have hearts of thanksgiving that you have seen fit to place them in this nation at this time for your glory. So God, we pray this morning that you stir up in all of our hearts a greater love and appreciation for your word, a greater understanding of the might and power of your kingdom. Ultimately, Lord, we want to glorify you. You are a great and awesome God. So as we sing now, Lord, hear our songs as a prayer to you, as a praise to you. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.